Hello, Greg. Hello, Hello Casey. Dwayne. Hello, Dwayne. How are you? I'm good. Are you all ready to talk about qualified immunity? Absolutely. Thrilled to. There's never a bad time to talk about qualified immunity. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is criminal justice reform, specifically qualified immunity. It was recorded on June 8th, 2020. Now, this is being talked about a lot these days, and we have a couple of folks here to explain it to us. So my name is Greg Glaude. I am the Criminal Justice Fellow for Americans for Prosperity Foundation. Uh, I work uh, solely on criminal justice reform issues um, here um, uh, for the foundation. Uh, prior to this, I was working at Right on Crime and the Texas Public Policy Foundation, where I was also solely working on criminal justice reforms with a focus on state-level reforms. I'm really happy uh, to be here and, and talking about a, uh, an issue that's obviously become very prevalent in the last couple of weeks. Sure, and, and I am Casey Maddox. Uh, I am Senior Fellow for Free Speech and Toleration at the Charles Koch Institute. Um, I also uh, am uh, Vice President for Legal and Judicial Strategy at Americans for Prosperity Foundation. Before I came into the network, I was a litigator on uh, First Amendment issues, and uh, it may surprise folks that qualified immunity is a major issue there. We'll get into that uh, in just a little bit, but uh, that's where I became really connected to uh, to this issue is the way that it uh, tends to shield a lot of people, even in addition to police officers from liability for violating constitutional rights. I'm on the Facebook machine the other day, and there's a lot of talk going around about qualified immunity. I see a friend of mine who has a thing on his Facebook avatar from uh, the Institute for Justice that says, hold government officials accountable and qualified immunity. I say, well, I trust IJ, so I put it on there. The first comment I get is, hell no. Totally disagree with this. Police are agents of the state. When on duty, they represent the state, not themselves. And my thought was, uh, I don't know what to say. Because honestly, I don't understand qualified immunity that well. I just trusted IJ, so I went with it. And then I thought, I need to find out more about this because my confusion, it cannot be solo. There's got to be other people out there around here who who are going to be talking about this and need to know more about it. So, Casey, if you don't mind starting us off, just explain what qualified immunity is. Sure. And and in order to answer that question, I hope this does not get too legal. Uh, that that's the, uh, the problem with inviting a lawyer on and asking them to be brief. But but in order to answer that question, it requires a little bit of background. So, in in one sense, I agree with the person who posted on your your Facebook page. That uh, you know these are our agents of the state. The the challenge here is that basically a long line really of Supreme Court cases um, have basically made it so that uh, when an individual's rights are violated by an agent of the state, there's virtually nothing you can do. Uh, you can't get redress in the courts. And qualified immunity is is uh, kind of one of the the last uh, straws in that line of cases. Uh, and it begins basically with. Uh, the Supreme Court holding that you can't sue your own state in federal court and get money damages. That's sovereign immunity. Um, I think the, the opinion there is wrong, but it begins with that, right? So you can't just sue the state 
for whatever a state official does and, you know, and, uh, and recover for the violation of your constitutional rights and hold them accountable. And then you get uh, the Supreme or the, the Congress deciding that they were going to empower individual lawsuits against government officials that violate the Constitution. And that's uh, a statute called 42 USC 1983. It's the Civil Rights Act, right? We'll probably refer to it here as 1983. It's actually from the 1800s that's uh, uh, protecting slaves from former slaves from being from being abused by government officials. And so that that was the purpose of that statute. The problem is that basically over the last uh, several decades, the Supreme Court has introduced this doctrine called qualified immunity that basically makes it very difficult to actually hold those officials that Congress intended to hold responsible and allow people to sue individually. It makes it very difficult to actually do that because what qualified immunity says is that they can only be sued for constitutional violations where the law was clearly established. That might not sound so bad so far. Uh, sounds like a, a sort of reasonable proposition. What it actually means is if a, if a government official, whether it's a police officer or someone else, violates your constitutional rights, you can only sue them in federal court. So you, you can't sue the state. You can't, in most cases, sue the municipality. You have to sue the individuals. That's the only thing that the Supreme Court has left you with. But you can't sue them unless you can point to prior cases usually binding in that judicial district. So if you're in Minnesota, for example, you need to show a, uh, a case in Minnesota where something very much like this has occurred before and a court has already said that this violates the Constitution. And if you can't point to a case like that, then you can't bring your suit in the first place. Uh, so for most people, what that means is that your constitutional rights are violated. You bear the cost, not the government, and no one is held accountable. That's uh, kind of breathtaking, isn't it? I mean, I'm just sitting here listening to it. And I don't. I, I'm trying to imagine how I would react if if I were in this in a situation where I had to even think about navigating this. This is isn't it really quite convoluted? Am I just hearing this wrong? Because I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking I don't. Even, I wouldn't even know where to start. No, it, it really is. It's a you know, it's a challenge for a lot of people. You know, you you can always. Uh, raise your voice, right? You can you can go out in the right into the into the streets and protest, which is what we're seeing people do. But you know, you have uh, people whose rights have been violated, and there's there's very little that, that they can do to actually hold the government accountable. And that contrasts with the way it was at the founding. At the founding, it was actually pretty frequent that a government official would violate your rights, and you sued them in court for money damages, and you could recover. Um, and in many of those cases, Congress had to you know, basically Congress had told ship captains to do, you know, this or that, right? And some of the rights were violated by one of those ship captains that were acting at the on the orders, of, you know, a naval official, acting on the, the orders of a naval official. And Congress had to go and, and reimburse the naval official because you could just sue the naval official. That was an agent of the, the government. They had violated your rights, and you could just go sue them um, and, you know, get redress in federal court. And it doesn't work that way anymore. Instead, you're you're in most cases you're left without the opportunity, you know, to, to go and make your case. So, you know, for example, in in Minnesota, you would need to, to find a factually similar case uh, where someone's rights uh, have have previously been held to be violated in a situation like the George Floyd case. That is a very difficult case to come up. Then it's particularly difficult because, uh, and this people have to bear with me for a sec here. 
if the if the courts don't have to allow you to continue with your case unless the law was clearly established, it's difficult to ever get the law clearly established in the first place. Because the first case that comes up, the George Floyd case, um, there wasn't a previous case like it, so therefore the court throws it out and says, sorry, you can't bring this lawsuit, because even if your rights were violated, they weren't clearly established. Well, when the second George Floyd case comes along, you still have no opportunity to point back to but in that prior case, at least they said, next time this happens, it's we're clearly establishing the law. They just threw out the case in the first place. So they never actually decided whether or not your rights were violated. So it's a it it's a, it's really problematic in multiple ways. You don't have the law developing um, that helps to at least inform government about what the rights are and, and how to, uh, to stay in line. Um, and you don't have the individuals being made whole for violations. This sounds asinine to me. Uh, Greg, I don't know if you can help or not with this, but help me understand the logic behind even establishing this in the first place. I mean, what's going through what's going through the minds as, as of the people who help create this, this basically mess, this idea here? What's the logic behind it? What's the rationale? Well, well, I think your, um, your, your Facebook commenter, Frank, kind of hit the nail on the head when they're talking about um, you know, what is the rationale behind something like that? That these individuals are state actors, they're trained and asked to, you know, enforce the laws of, of the state. Uh, because they're put in this position, they shouldn't be held liable um, for these types of violations unless there is clearly established law or, you know, they're trying to make a good faith effort, something along those lines. So that's kind of the, the 30,000 foot of why this shouldn't happen, that, you know, these people should be able to do their jobs in a way where they don't have to live in fear of, uh, of liability in, in a civil court later. Um, and, there, and there's a couple problems with that. One, from a philosophical standpoint, uh, and this is something Casey has, has brought up um, before, and, and I'm going to ruthlessly steal it right in front of his face. Um, you know, you're, you're, ask, you're, you're saying for, if you're a business owner or, or just a regular civilian, that if you violate someone's rights, they can sue you. And if you try to go up, go into a court and say, well, I didn't know about that right, or I, you know, I didn't know that I had to do this or that, but the court's going to say tough break. Um, it, it doesn't matter what you knew. Their ignorance of the law is no excuse. And if you did not, um, you know, abide by some standard um, based upon, you know, negligence or, or whatever else, um, you could be held liable in a civil court. And we've decided, you know, in, in a capitalist society that that's a, a way to put a check and make sure that certain things go about. Now you can make the arguments about, you know, tort liability and, and other things along those lines. And that's that's all well and good. But we set a standard for government actors at a much, much higher level than the average citizen. And when you put government actors who are supposed to know the law because they have to enforce it, and then you say at the same time, well, I didn't know what the law was, and now you don't get your day in court, it seems counterintuitive to me. I, in, in many senses, uh, state actors should be held to a higher standard. Um, and then from a practical standpoint, um, my problems with that is we, we our arguments for, um, uh, you know, against, uh, you know, civil, uh, qualified immunity uh, reform here, talk about, well, we don't want police officers or someone, you know, writing big checks and running their lives from a financial liability because they're trying to protect public safety. In almost every case, I, you know, there's there's been studies, 99.98% of cases, and it, you're going to have that liability, the defense, um, and any money that's paid out is going to go from um, the actual agency and not the individual itself. Um, they, they pay out these any wrongful death suit that you've ever seen or, uh, you know, if someone's been wrongfully convicted and they had to spend time in prison, you see these big payouts. It's not the, you know, it's not the judge or the prosecutor or the cop. It's, it's going to be the agency. Actually, it's going to be 
the taxpayer um, in a lot of sense. So, um, you know, from a philosophical and practical standpoint, um, the arguments for qualified immunity just kind of you know fall flat, in my opinion. When you look at our vision, the vision being that to break barriers, my my question then, uh, Casey, to you, can you can you really explain how this this idea of qualified immunity erects barriers that we would want to break through? You can't have a key institution of government working correctly if you have uh, government able to violate people's individual rights and not be held accountable for that. And you know, and it creates a a culture in which people think that the rule of law ultimately doesn't really matter. Um, if police officers or you know uh, other government officials can violate your rights and there's no way to hold them accountable, not only do you you know do you have you know first of all uh, the the actual violation of the rule of law where people's uh, you're infringed and there's nothing that you can do about it um, that's problematic enough but it also just it it uh, feeds doubt in the entire system um, which then becomes its own barrier right. Uh, if you if you don't believe that the uh, that the government is actually going to be responsive, um, you have very good reason to believe that the government is not going to be responsive, that they're not living up to their own standards and not respecting your freedoms. Then there's a lot of reason why uh, that that causes people to doubt why they should believe in our system. And so I think it's very fundamental to uh, uh, being able to break barriers is that you have a citizenry that believes that legal structures that are in place are actually going to be effective tools for working out problems. Because if we don't have that confidence, then, you know, that's a, uh, that's a scary place, right? Then people start uh, feeling the need to take matters into their own hands if they don't believe uh, that the government itself is actually going to be, uh, the, the legal system we've created is actually going to be a responsive productive way of settling disputes, even with the government itself. And Casey, if I can just piggyback on that, and just to make clear for folks listening, we're not even talking about the merits of the case itself. Qualified immunity says that you, you don't even get your day in court, in civil court, to even state your case. And so I, there's there's been cases where literally cops have taken money from individuals' houses and use it for their own personal profit, not throwing it in the coffers of a law enforcement agency or into general fund or something. And because there wasn't a case uh, prior to that that had similar facts uh, that showed that this is a violation of the Constitution, that individual can't even have their day in court. These are all you know, done at the motion to dismiss or summary judgment procedures, which is even prior to an actual court case. So uh, we're actually even asserting the entire you know, civil justice system away uh, based upon a doctrine that's just been read in by the Supreme Court, it's not even the plain language of the Constitution. So um, it's even going beyond that step of even being able to present your case in front of you. Do you have any examples of when someone has navigated this, where there, there actually has been a case taken to the courts that has been successful? I'll take that as a no. I mean, <laughs> if, it, if it takes that long <laughs> yeah, to think yeah, about I, it. I can I can think of some, Greg. I'm I'm wondering if you have uh, examples on the criminal justice side of uh, uh, where courts have denied qualified immunity in some of these cases. I, I feel like there have been. Uh, I, I will say that there have been courts have been more searching about some of these questions in the last year or two, as I think uh, do the results of of our community and the and our partners working on this issue. We've raised the profile of the problem enough 
so that you now have a lot of federal courts, lower federal courts that are, uh, you know, kind of uh, openly raising doubts about the doctrine um, and its vitality. And I've seen courts wanting to move more in the direction of denying qualified immunity. Um, at least that's sort of my uh, my observation that's not based on necessarily on data. So I can think of some examples, but the examples that are coming to my head are, are sort of in the free speech context. Greg, I'm wondering if you've got particularly criminal justice examples that come to mind for qualified immunity been defeated. Uh, well, well, first of all, Casey is one of the foremost experts, particularly in case law when it comes to qualified immunity. And the fact that it took him 10 seconds to even think of a case uh, kind of tells you one of the problems. From the criminal justice perspective, I don't know any specific, I couldn't tell you a specific case number right now, but I know that there has been cases when um, there has been specific use of force once in a while, but they are few and far between. Almost all the time that you see these cases, it is some egregious conduct uh, done by law enforcement or, you know, just in the criminal justice system where you can't believe that, you know, an individual doesn't even get their day in court on this. I, I know a, a recent one that I've seen are you know, dog on, on leash barking um, and, you know, a law enforcement official uh, shoots the dog when there is really no, you know, safety threat uh, there. And because, you know, that wasn't a violation of the Constitution based upon uh, case precedent, uh, you don't get your day in court to even uh, see if that's a, a violation of your civil rights. I mean, it is it is some of the most, you know, I, I work in civil asset forfeiture and we know a lot of the, the egregious cases there. When you start digging into the qualified immunity cases and the things that have been denied, um, and not being held, held accountable for your government actors. I, I think there are even more egregious examples, but I'll, I'll let you dive into some of the, um, the freedom of speech and freedom of expression. That, yeah, yeah, and, and to, to Greg's point, I mean, we, there are three cases pending right now at the Supreme Court that we have joined uh, Americans for Prosperity Foundation, this cross-ideological group of org very broad range of organizations from socially conservative to libertarian to quite progressive and just across the, the spectrum of organizations that are uh, asking the court to reconsider the doctrine. Baxter versus Bracey is one of those cases that's still currently pending. Um, and this is basically the case where an individual was lying on the ground, giving himself up to police, um, hands up, lying on the ground, and the police nevertheless sicked a police dog on the guy. And the, the lower courts have said, well, qualified immunity. Um, the law is not clearly established that you can't send the police dogs after a guy lying on the ground with his hands up. Um, and that's you know, sort of a, a representative of the kinds of, of situations that we often see. In the free speech context, I've seen it come, uh, you know, there have been a couple of cases in the last year. I mean, one uh, where qualified immunity was actually defeated. Most of my experience has been in the campus free speech context. There was a case where basically uh, the University of California system was collecting uh, student activity fees from students, was distributing those fees in a blatantly discriminatory way, allowing some groups to bring in speakers, not allowing other groups to bring in speakers. And the district court in California said that violated qualified immunity, and the chancellor of the University of California system could be personally uh, sued. Now, the result of, uh, of a lawsuit like that is that, uh, and this sort of proves the point of what qualified immunity does is that basically they, they fought that case until the moment that you have the decision that says the chancellor of the University of California system can be personally liable here under qualified immunity for their actions. Uh, and then the, the system very quickly uh, moved to settle the case. So they were interested in fighting it until they uh, you start getting individuals responsible. Uh, and then it's a, a different animal. So 
there are some examples like that, but they are far and few between, and they have to be really egregious situations before a court will deny qualified immunity. So who's out there that's actually in support of qualified immunity, and why are they defending it? You know, I, I, I think the government, uh, in a lot of ways, um, you know, obviously uh, they want to limit liability for, um, you know, their their employees. Um, it, it helps them. It helps their employees. Um, but it definitely doesn't help uh, accountability and transparency within these, uh, you know, government agencies. And the other big one is, is unions. Um, you know, unions uh, in a lot of ways discuss how, um, you know, they, they advocate for quality amongst their uh, their members and, and membership. But in a lot of ways, it's really just ensuring and preserving uh, their membership itself and accruing more numbers of members. And so, you know, in a lot of, um, you know, in a lot of uh, contracts, particularly in the policing standard, there's a lot of provisions there that undermine accountability and transparency when it comes to misconduct of uh, law enforcement officials. And I know Casey has a lot of examples within unions and others um, in, in the higher ed system. Um, but, you know, unions are a big, uh, you know, proponent of qualified immunity. It protects their members, it protects their membership, and it keeps um, everyone in that system, uh, you know, very happy. Yeah, the only thing I would add uh, to what Greg said is, um, you know, I think politically it's a complicated mess. Um, you, you know, much for the reason that the unions tend to very much support qualified immunity that you would think of, uh, I think that has caused a lot of folks that are more progressive to tamp down their criticism of qualified immunity because they did because of its support from the, the police unions. Uh, but you also have sort of an instinctive response, I think, from a lot of conservatives to protect qualified immunity because it feels like an anti-cop move. Uh, and so they sort of perceive it that way. And I, I think one uh, important thing, particularly for those audiences, is to remind people that qualified immunity is not a cop doctrine. This is not limited to police officers. Uh, as I would often tell people, if I was trying to do one thing that would protect free speech rights on university campuses more than anything else, if I was only allowed to do one thing, it would be to eliminate qualified immunity. And those are settings where there are no life or death, last minute, you know, all of those sort of uh, things that people will write, will raise in the, the qualified immunity context for police officers, the the concerns that people have. What about the, you know, the split second life set, life death decision? Those are cases where basically a, you know, someone in the student affairs office is deciding that, you know, whether or not your speaker can come to campus or not. And they just willfully choose not to call university council's office and find out, am I allowed to deny this speaker because I don't like them? And there's no incentive with qualified immunity for them to really get that right. And, uh, and even be trained on what does the First Amendment say with how I should be handling, you know, student speech uh, and student organizations. There's there's very little incentive to get the training and the and get the the written policies correct if you can't hold the individuals who are actually applying them responsible. So I'm glad you brought up the idea that this is an anti-cop thing because one of the questions I I received from a friend of mine who's actually in law enforcement is without this. How do you protect officers from bogus lawsuits? Doesn't that op open them up to all sorts of trouble legally? Short answer, no. Um, like we talked about, you know, any any union or association or, you know, the agency itself is going to pay for the uh, expenses, including, you know, legal representation and, and any judgment that it's laid out. And so you have the same protections 
uh, from a financial standpoint that that you would, um, you know, if there was a criminal liability or whatever else. So um, that's that's number one. Um, number two, um, you know, you have the same protections that anyone else would from, you know, a frivolous claim. And so the same way that you throw out a claim now through qualified immunity is the same way you throw a claim from a frivolous lawsuit. You know, individual brings it. You file a motion to dismiss. If it doesn't have any merit, um, then it doesn't have any merit. But if it does, then you continue moving forward. And if it has no merit later on, then you can file a summary judgment and get it tossed out. I mean, there are protections within the civil justice system to ensure that these frivolous lawsuits are um, taken care of before some sort of, you know, a judgment. Again, I think the, the big thing to stress here is qualified immunity doesn't mean uh, that a cop is liable or not. It just means that an actual individual can have their day in court. Um, if there's a constitutional violation that's alleged. Um, and so we're, we're not opening the floodgates to frivolous lawsuits here. We're, we're opening the floodgates to just accountability and transparency. And from the anti-cop standpoint, you know, if you're a good cop and you want better uh, culture within your police department, you should be welcoming qualified immunity reform here because it allows for some sort of accountability uh, from those officers that have been, um, you know, violating the constitutional rights of, of the community. And, you know, when we're seeing things that are going on in Minneapolis right now, if there was more accountability within that police department, if there were more accountability and transparency in, um, you know, use of force, um, you know, uh, determinations and, and things like that, maybe we would not have as many, um, you know, incidents as that. And so good cops should support uh, qualified immunity and have nothing to fear, just like a, a business owner who should welcome, you know, th those types of things. If, if he's a good business and others are acting bad, you know, that, that helps him for, that's good for business if you're a good business owner. So, um, you know, I, I understand the concerns anytime you're opening up the liability, obviously there's going to be a pushback to that. Um, but I think that could be beneficial not only to, to citizens, but also to law enforcement. I think that the other thing I would add to what Greg said is, uh, you know, the, the question I often get as an attorney um, is always, you know, well, but can I get sued, you know, for, for X? And the answer is always, yes, of course you can. Because that's the way our system works is that any of us on this phone call um, can get sued for anything at any time. The question is, can that lawsuit continue? Qualified immunity um, stops it in tracks before you get to you know the next uh, step down the path. But, but of course, you can always get sued, right? And those lawsuits are occurring. But that's because Congress chose to make that happen. Uh, and this is where I would sort of uh, kind of... The, the separation of powers argument, if nothing else, all of the objections to ending qualified immunity tend to be policy objections. Some of them, I think, have some, some merit to them uh, that require working out, right? So how do we make sure that, uh, you know, for example, we're not disincentivizing cops from wanting to do the dangerous work because uh, that's going to put them more likely in scenarios where uh, they, they have to subdue a suspect or something like that? How do we not disincentivize cops from wanting to take that work and instead make everyone into a traffic cop, right? I think those are legitimate questions that there are answers for, but they're legitimate questions that have to be worked through, but they're policy questions. Qualified immunity was imposed by the courts. Congress just said that if you, uh, if you, uh, acting under color of state law, so if you are, are wearing the badge, wearing uh, the, the trappings of a government office, and you violate people's constitutional rights, you can be sued in federal court. And that's what Congress said. It didn't create any kind of, uh, of exemption to that or immunity from that at all. It's the courts that went in and created this. So if we're going to have qualified immunity or some version of qualified immunity or 
you know, whatever the policy answer for any of these questions is, that's something that policymakers need to sort out and not the court. The first step in that is the Supreme Court overturns the doctrine, resets, we get back to, we just have the statute that says you can sue these individual government officials in federal court. Now, if we need to fix that in Congress and make sure that we've addressed the indemnification question, that we've uh, worked out the insurance questions, whatever the other problems are that need to be solved, those are policy questions that uh, Congress and state legislatures can work on from there. Thank you for listening to this installment of Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. If you have any questions regarding today's top priority, please email them to me at toppriority at afphq.org. We'd love to answer them in an episode of Frequently Asked, a short podcast where we answer the most frequently asked questions regarding our priority initiatives. And if there's an aspect of today's priority that you want us to discuss further, let us know that too. Until next time, I'm Dwayne Lesser, and thanks again for listening.